there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Creative people and how they do their thing, why they do it, how they keep it going. That's what I love to talk about. Today, my guest is someone that I've admired for a very long time. Vincent Patterson is a choreographer, a dancer, a director, uh, an actor, and now he's an author. He co-wrote a book about his career and his life with Amy Tofty, and the book is called Icons and Instincts, Choreographing and Directing Entertainment's Biggest Stars. Uh, Vincent appeared in the Michael Jackson videos Beat It and Thriller and then went on to choreograph Michael's iconic video, Smooth Criminal. He also directed Madonna's Blonde Ambition Tour. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know my connection to that. He has an amazing body of work and he's written a wonderful book about it. And I was so excited to talk to him and I had so many questions that we talked for two hours. So this is going to be a two-parter. This will be part one. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Snickers. No, it's not. It's not. I wish it was. Um, Actually, it's brought to you by me. I pretty much do it. Um, But there are ways you can support the podcast if you like it, you can go to dennisanyone.net slash support and you can leave a tip in my virtual tip jar or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows and for a monthly subscription, you get my show two days early and all these other great shows and you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. And now without any further ado, here is part one of my interview with Vincent Patterson. Joining me now via Zoom from Hollywood, it's Vincent Patterson, actor, dancer, director, choreographer, and the author of the book Icons and Instincts, which he co-wrote with Amy Tofty. It's all about his amazing career, choreographing, directing for Michael Jackson, Madonna, uh, The Birdcage, just everything you've ever seen and loved. He's the man behind it. Welcome to the podcast, Vincent. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I'm a former dancer, um, and you were one of my idols when I first started dancing. And I, there was a show on NBC called Jump, and oh, it was yeah. it was like at the, at the beginning of music videos, and it was like they did like two of them, and it was like young LA dancers would do like a Cyndi Lauper dance, and and there was kind of stories threaded through it, and it was when I first started getting into dancing myself, and I wore that tape. Out. I wanted ah. to be one of you guys so badly. Do you even remember the show? Do you remember what it was? Well, I do. I'll tell you what's really funny about that show. I think I was already about like almost 30 at that point, but I always looked very young. And I remember Don Misher directed it and Kenny Ortega choreographed it, so to speak. But I love that you did that in quotes. This is <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and we, were, we all really created our own pieces is what yeah. happened all but the funny thing was, I remember at the audition, uh, I saw Kenny and, and, and Don up there talking, and then I saw Kenny come up real close and, like, looking for wrinkles on my face. Uh, we're not allowed to legally ask how old you are, but I just want to kind of take a look. So, anyway, I guess I passed it. I was supposed to be, like, in my young 20s or early, late teens or yeah. something. Anyway, I, I was, I think I was about 30, oh. but I... It was a fun show. It was a really fun show. I wore those VHS tapes out. I wanted to be <laughs> you guys. And I didn't take my first dance class until I was 18 and because I grew up in a small town. And I felt like I got started late. But when I read your book, you started way after 18. And then yeah. you, and you rose so quickly. You got good so fast. I was knocked out by that. So you'd started dancing relatively late for a, somebody that ended up making their living in that field, right? I did. I was like 23 and a half, almost 24, kind of. And I was just an actor. I'd been an actor before that and a director. And, um, you know, I used to pass, I was living in Arizona at the time for a short period of time. And I would pass this dance studio every day and I'd hear this music. And I, I thought, I don't even know what that is. I'd never seen a ballet, I don't think. And I, I, all the theater that I had done was like um, either the classics or modern. It was no musicals were involved at all. Right. So I stuck my head in the door and I saw these young ladies doing ballet and the, the, the instructors came over and asked me, you know, uh, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I, I think I might like to take something like this for exercise. And she said, well, we don't have adult classes, but, you know, we have like girls that are like 10 to 14 or 15 if you want to take those. And I said, well, OK, I'll try that. And, 
And wow. I don't know. It, I, you know, I took a couple classes, Dan, and I, I, I was addicted. I, I never experienced anything like that before in my life. Those endorphins were just like such a high and, and I got addicted and I just started coming to class all the time and it, it changed my life. Yeah. You got good fast though. When did you realize, oh, I could kind of do this. Like I have a knack for this. Well, you know, I was, I grew up outside of Philadelphia and I was always like the white boy that a lot of the black girls wanted to dance with. That was funky. I mean, if we didn't have, I know that I'm that boy. I get it. I get it. Yeah. But we, we didn't have hip hop or street dance or stuff like that. But you know, I mean, with all all the the high school dances and stuff like that. And I was just basically a good dancer, you know, and, I never thought about doing it in any kind of way professionally. Like I said, when I, I went to school at Dickinson College for theater and theater arts, and but nothing had to do with dance or, or musicals or anything like that. So it was really unexpected. And I guess it was just something that was meant to happen. But, boy, I had a great time. But you sounds like you put in the hours, too. Is that like you were there, like, every oh, yeah. day and doing the uh, – yeah, all the – yeah, amazing. Now, you grew up, you said, in uh, outside of Philadelphia and – Dance was cool in your home. Your father taught dance because a lot of for a lot of boys, dance was not cool. Like it was sort of not not something that was even around. Or if you, I remember like I would dance in this back room behind our our house, like it's this playroom, and dance. And if I, and if I got caught, it would be like getting caught masturbating. It would be like <laughs> nobody can see that I was just doing. I was working a choreography to boogie oogie oogie. Like but I still remember vividly that feeling of like. Shame around it, but that was not your world. But your house was volatile, right? Well, my my father was a uh, he was a dance instructor, but uh, it was for social dancing. I mean, he right. wouldn't even call it ballroom dancing he, because that was too dancing. Dancing. Oh, really? Yeah. So he okay, had. Yeah. Oh, no, interesting. It, it was about because you know I grew up in the late fifties and, yeah. and into the sixties, and you know everybody danced then at. at baptisms and communions and backyard barbecues and everybody danced. I mean, they did the jitterbug and the cha-cha and all those kind of things. So I knew how to do that stuff, but we never really thought of it as dancing because it was just part of life, you know, it it wasn't anything like professional. And like I said, my father wouldn't even call it ballroom. It was social dance. So um, yeah, but my house was very volatile. I think it was because my parents were quite young and, um, and I think my father had expectations that he was going to be something great and right. it didn't really materialize. And I think that kind of overshadowed how he lived his life and how he lived his life with us. And we were kind of the chains around his neck, I think. Um, it's the way he looked at us. So mm. it was difficult. It was it difficult. Was and then they got divorced and it sounded like the temperature in the house changed or the oh absolutely yeah yeah it was very violent very yeah. violent and um yeah physically violent and yeah it was a good thing that he left finally and uh i was the oldest of the five kids and i was about 13 or 14 i think and so after that i became kind of daddy of the house and and that was hard for a young guy but anyway that's that was my life so it taught me a lot of lessons and it it taught me about growing up fast and, and also about being independent and also making decisions for myself because my mom was only 19 years older than me and she was more like a big sister in a way. Right. So and- everything that happened to me, I it was because of my own uh, excitement about life or, or wanting to go to college to get out of that little town or whatever it was. It was all done under my own... Um, cognition and no one who was forcing me or even assisting me in moving forward in any way. You just, you just charted your own path. Um, I was, I was yeah. reading about how you ended up in Arizona and started studying at cinema. I was like, I wonder how he gets to LA. And then something happens that I was not expecting in your book, the, uh, a horrible tragedy. Um, yeah. Your first partner is, is murdered uh, yeah. while you're in Tucson. You're in your mid twenties. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Um, I was- Wow, I, I was just like, whoa, I did not see that coming. Yeah, either did I, either did he. Yeah, so. like, um, and, but there are things that happen right afterwards that sort of send you on your way. They have a sort of mystical 
psychic quality. You, you go to like a psychic church. Can you tell, talk a little bit about that? It, it was like, I love that woo-woo stuff. I'm into it. Whenever anyone says, oh, oh it's a little woo-woo, I like lean forward. I don't know. I'm into it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that must have been wild. Well, yeah, I've always been kind of perceptive that way, although I never really used it or, or understood it at all. Um, but yeah, I, I was living with Richard for several years and um, he had gone over to take care of the horses for some friends who had gone away on vacation. And some people came to rob that man's house right? and wound up finding Richard there and tied him up in a chair and strangled him. And it was very difficult. He was only 28. And oh my God. We were both really young. And, 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 and I was kind of left there for a long time and, and, Things started happening happening immediately. I mean, I I realized that he had passed away. I was out. I had been up all night because he had never not come home. And right. and, and I was calling hospitals. I was calling every place. Nobody knew anything. Nobody could tell me anything. And I was out in the garden. It was about six o'clock in the morning, and I was just working in the garden. I was so frustrated. I didn't know. And I looked up, and he was standing in front of me, and he said, "Honey, I'm dead." And disappeared and just at that moment the phone rang and it was the father of the man whose house Richard had been murdered in and he said Vincent I need to tell you something and he told me about Richard's death and so interestingly enough what happened was um, besides getting weird phone calls and things late in the middle of the night that were really kind of disturbing and and frightening I got a call from the police because immediately after what happened, the police came in and actually took me down for questioning, thinking it might have been me who killed him in some way. But they realized immediately that it wasn't. Um, And as time went on, they couldn't find anybody. And they called me eventually and they said, listen, um, we have we have a psychic who we brought in to work on the case. I had previously told them that I had been having these dreams and Richard had appeared to me and said there were three people involved. There were two men with dark hair and a blonde-haired woman. And I told this to the police. And so when this woman came in from, I think she was Oklahoma, a psychic to work on the case, they said, listen, if you want to go speak with her, we'll certainly cover the price. Don't worry about it, you know. So I did, and she was so, oh, my God, informative in ways I had never experienced anyone like this before. I mean... Uh, one simple example at the beginning is she said, you know, Richard is talking to me a lot right now, but he's telling me all these things that have to, that the information is not for Vincent. The information is for someone like an animal, like, like a, 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 a cat or something. I said, Oh my God, my blood, my blood just ran cold again. I said, um, you know, that's me because he used to call me cat boy because I used to be stretching all the time because of my dance classes. Right. So she told me all of these things from the fact that, you know, I mean, uh, I'll tell you about the psychic church thing in a second, but she told me Richard didn't leave a will. He was too young, but there's something there. He wants you to find it. It's in and around something large and rectangular and I went home and, and fell asleep and got up and started going around the house and eventually found, he was a pilot, an air, uh, airline pilot, and he had a, a log, a pilot's log, and I went into this back room where I was putting all this junk together and and I walked in the room and, and I felt this kind of hot, hot and cold is all I can say. And as I moved around the room, I got hotter as I moved towards this box of books and I went inside the box and pulled books out and it got hotter and hotter and I found his pilot's log and in it were two that $1,000 bills which were really rare and two $1 bills and that got me through my first six months in Los Angeles once I moved but the other thing that happened was a dear friend of mine still a dear friend of mine said listen there's a psychic church in the valley in, in the in the desert and I would love to go there with you so I did and we went, and it was like a very small little room, and it was kind of like a priest, and he would do the mass, so to speak, and then he would get up to deliver the gospel, and when he did, he would say something like, I can't remember exactly, but Mrs. Jones, your husband doesn't want you to sell your house yet. He wants you to, He thinks it's better if you wait for about four months or something, you know, and he's giving these few people in the room some information, and I'm sitting holding my friend's hand, and 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 
like sparks or chills go up from my feet, like a shock wave and go up through my body. And, and, and she felt it through her hand when I was holding it. And we looked at each other and he said, I have something for the young man in the back row, which was me. You're like, oh and boy. Okay. I know. And he basically told me that I was around a, 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 a young spirit who, who was newly spirited and I was going to move to the coast and I would have a, I would have a certain kind of profession. He didn't say what, but he said that profession would lead me into a directing profession by the time I was in my fifties. And, um, yeah, it was just crazy. And all of that stuff came true. It, it, you know, both from the psychic from Oklahoma and this minister of the psychic church, it, it was shocking. And yeah, it was Pretty intense time. Pretty oh, intense. Yeah, yeah, and you're 26 years old, and, you, and it's all unfolding. Did they find out who did it? Did the psychic help? They did. Yeah. They did. They did find out who did was it. it. What it was, you dreamed? Well, I I, I was gone at yeah. that point, and um, but they found a man in Phoenix. I was in Tucson. They found right. a man in Phoenix who, um, and I didn't continue to follow it. I yeah. wanted it in yeah. my past, but. They, the police had come up to the house and the guy came out and started shooting and, um, and they shot him, you oh, know? Wow. Yeah. There was a shootout in the, this neighborhood, you know? So, yeah. But I that's... also can't believe that the official police would bring in a psychic. I thought that was something they did in movies, but it, they do it. it. It happened. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised too. After you moved and started working, did you ever have those moments where you felt connected to Richard again, like when you were doing something in your career? Did it? Did those kind of moments continue to happen as you moved through your career? Um, a little bit, once in a while. But, you know, I, I also decided that I, I was out here for a couple of years and I thought, oh, I'll take a, a psychic class. And I went to take a psychic class in Santa Monica and... You know, I, I was getting too much information and, I, and I, said, I, I don't want this anymore. Yeah, I, it's I, enough. This, you know? yeah. So I just kind of stopped. Yeah. And the way I wound up using it was, I talk about this in the book a little bit too, was self-healing. Um, you know, I, I grew back a finger um, and um, I've done a lot of self. Uh, two years ago, I had a herniated disc. They wanted to operate on me and three different doctors wanted to operate. And I found a doctor who said, listen, why don't you just take PT for a little while and see what you can work it through? Yeah. I took PT for a little while and went into again meditation period for several months and went back to see this doctor and he took X-rays and or uh, scan MRI yeah, scan. Sure. And he said, "I thought you weren't going to have any kind of surgery." I said, "I didn't." And he said, "Well, you have no herniated disc; it's gone." Wow. And I explained what I had done with the visualizations and. Anyway, so that's kind of the way I've used the psychic knowledge or ability is to when things are really desperately difficult on my body, I use it to try to heal myself. Wow, that's remarkable. And the finger, you uh, what happened where you hurt your finger? <sighs> okay, so you can see, they can't see, but uh, if I put this up close, yeah. you can see that this finger yeah. is a little bit different than those that fingernail, sure. right? Yeah. Um, well, what happened was I was on these uh, Nautilus machine, exercise machines. Nautilus, yes. They had a chain that went down to the yeah. ground, up around a Nautilus um, gear. And that the gym that I was in, in West Hollywood, you if you wanted to be next in line, you went and put your card up on the top under a clip. And right. as I did, this guy was on the machine, and he was on a tricep machine, and he pulled the machine down. My yep. finger got caught in the chain. Oh. I dragged to the floor. And when he let it go, it was just like blood everywhere. And they rushed me over to Cedar sinai This doctor wanted to cut off my finger there. Wow. And I said, at out the, of nowhere, the, I said, no. Yeah. Yeah. Out of, I said, no, you're not going to cut it off. And I, I'm going to grow it back. And he said, why? I've got to do jazz hands. I've got to do jazz hands. <laughs> right? you well, that's the truth. I mean, it was yeah. the early 80s. I was really just starting my yeah. career. I thought I cannot start my career like this, you know. And... The, the the crazy thing about it, I mean, it it just popped into my head that, okay, my body did this once. It's not like something new. My body grew a finger once already in my mother's womb. So why can't my body grow a finger again? And I went to a, into about three and a half months of meditation. I would keep going back to this doctor for a short period of time until yeah. he got some negative. I just said, forget it. I'm, I, I don't need to come back to this doctor anymore. And, um, and the finger started growing and the... 
he kept saying, you're not going to have a knuckle. And I had a knuckle. Then he said, you're not going to have a nail. And I started to have a nail. And so I said, bye-bye, doctor. I'll do it myself. Remarkable. So, so It you, is remarkable. So you moved to L.A. You, you intensely studied dance. You become part of that community. You start booking gigs. Your first gig was with Dick Van Dyke. Is that right? Uh, first, my first yeah, was gig? Yeah. He was on a CBS special. There were a lot of these specials at the time. And yeah, I, the golden age did. of variety shows. I love that absolutely, stuff. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, yeah, that was the first one I did. I think it was called CBS on the Air, and Dick Van Dyke happened to be on it. And what a sweet man he was. And it and was a beautiful way to begin my career here. And still with us. And you were a regular on the Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell Sister show. And I went back and watched some of these clips. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. So just I'm angry. But <laughs> You're so she's sweet. good. She moves really well. Like I was impressed with like, oh, she's got some moves. Um, and you write about a lot of the country people that you worked with that they, they there was like a vibe there, like a down home, down to earth. Is that something you observe compared to some of the other celebrities that you might have worked with? Well, I, I don't know anymore because things have changed with social media so drastically. Sure. Yeah. Every entertainer, I think. But I certainly, you know, I was with a lot of different people, rock and roll people, uh, you know, pop rock artists. And everyone I met on Barbara Mandrell's show, including she and including her and her sisters and her family, it was like having your own family. It, it wasn't like stepping into the world of entertainment or Hollywood. It was like, you know, she'd bring lunch every afternoon or I, I mean, it was just so sweet and they were so kind and Dolly Parton was like that, and, and, and Roy Rogers and Dale Evans I got to meet. They were like that. Everybody I met on that show, they couldn't have been kinder. They could not have been sweeter. So it seemed to me that those people that came from the country music world had something that was a little bit more down home, or or, or their, their goals weren't to, I don't know, take over the world as much as they were to kind of enjoy the art that they had and share it with people in a very friendly fashion. So... I love that. And you worked with Olivia Newton-John, one of my favorites. There's a photo of oh, you together. And yeah. she, she was just lovely, right? Oh, she was the sweetest. She was such a sweetheart. And I, I, I kept in touch with her for many, many years. And, um, you know, and every once in a while I'd run into her when she came here. And I'd go to a theater and she said she was going to go see it too. And, you know, we'd see each other there. And she was such a nice lady. Another one of those very special people that was just so unlike Hollywood. You and know, you, she, you were in the totally hot video. Am I right about that? Yeah, totally oh, hot. Yeah, the best. it was like her. It was right when she started getting kind of <laughs> post slutty priest, is the wrong word, priest. but you know what I mean. It was the the pant the tight pants. Um, <laughs> were, were you ever? Did you ever audition for Solid Gold? Because it bugs me now that there were only two guys on Solid Gold and like seven girls. I. Looking back, that doesn't seem right. But I, I yeah. love those those shows. Were you ever a solid gold dancer or close I to it? I never was. No, I never. I never. I, I don't know. I was always too busy to take on something that, I mean, after Barbara Mandrell, you know, I mean, that took, that was two years yeah. of my life. And, um, you know, so I, I wasn't that interested in doing another series. Right. Um, just having too much fun. Doing. Especially music videos kind of yeah, took off. Yeah, and. So, and not long after that, Beat It was your first Michael Jackson video. Uh, oh, you're, yeah. one of, you're one of the gang members. You've got a knife. Was it a real knife? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> and one of the things that I learned in your book is there were real gang members in the video. Like oh, yeah. L.A. gang members. What was that oh, yeah. like to be around that atmosphere? The Crips and the Bloods. It was a little scary at times um, because they really were real, guy, real gang guys. And they were not, they didn't like each other. And at times it would get a little hairy. Um, you know, there was one point when they didn't quite understand the process of filmmaking. And yeah, it's not their world. Thought, yeah, I know. They thought you just come and they shoot it one time and there you go. And that's the end of it all. Right. Um, so we started to get a little bit rowdy and the police and the, you know, the kind of the assistant director and people, producers had to explain to them that, no, the way film works is you have to repeat the same shot many, many times right. until it gets it's captured perfectly. Um, nothing, nothing negative happened ultimately, but there was a little bit of nervousness for here and there. Yeah. Reading your book, I, that struck me as the first thing you were in that kind of blew up huge. That everyone knew that video. People were doing those moves. I still remember like a lot of them. What was that like to be part of something that was sort of a phenomenon? 
Well, we had no idea because music videos were so right. new. And I mean, it was, uh, it was virgin territory. And, you know, we just thought we were doing another gig, basically. And I was never really a Michael Jackson fan. I mean, I enjoyed his work with the Jackson 5, but I was never blown away by Michael Jackson until I met him. And there was something about this guy that was otherworldly. He just had seemed to possess this talent and nature and personality that was so kind and loving and, 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 just beyond uh, his his knowledge was incredible of music and film and things like this and and the, what really impressed me was during Beat It period which was really the first video on his own outside of Billy Jean but in Billy Jean he did it basically by himself and here he was interacting with real dancers for a change um, he he was so modest and shy and you know nervous to talk to anybody and always spoke in that little whisper and. You know, it was amazing, Dan, to, to 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 spend almost 18 years with him and watch him go from that to, you know, this mega, mega superstar, as we all know. It was an incredible journey for me, as, as well as for him, certainly. But uh, You write about a conversation you have with him on one of your earlier collaborations, and he's asking you, it's about sex, sexuality, he asks you if you're gay. Uh, it was interesting because he's so childlike and you felt like he didn't have anyone else that he could talk to about anything. And I don't know, that little exchange was so poignant to me. Um, what was it like as it was unfolding? Well, you know, I felt I felt that we had a, 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 a friendship that, you know, I never pushed to have a friendship outside of work with any of these celebrities. I just, I never wanted any of them to think that I was there for that I was there for work, for the creativity and the artistry of it all. But I'm a kind of genuine guy. I'm, a, I'm an easy guy, and I, I have a pleasant personality, and I'm social. And, you know, so even from the very beginning, I, Michael Jackson, I think, felt very comfortable with me and have, talking to me and, you know, expressing his concerns or his nervousness about things or whatever. And I was a little bit surprised when he started asking me about sex, but... It was kind of conversations that I had with my brothers when I was a kid. Right. There know? was something adolescent about it, like like yeah. puberty era, because he was asking about exactly. masturbation and stuff like that. Yeah, there was it was poignant, and um, it was beautiful actually. Yeah. And um, you know, it wasn't crying. It was kind of like boy talk. Like you he's know? trying to figure things out. Like you yeah. felt like he was sort of searching a little bit. He has a funny word for um, masturbation, but I'm going to make people buy the book. If they want to know what that is, right? Because it, it tickled me. And uh, yeah, reading that. Um, so you came to be in Beat It. You were working with the choreographer, Michael, uh, Michael Peters, Peters who, direct, who choreographed that. And you had been part of this little, it looked like a, a group of people that just got together to dance, like put in a lot of work, but it was kind of a workshop feeling. And it, it seems like it paid off because you all started getting hired and, and really shining in these jobs. Do you feel like that work you put in independently on choreography and, and getting good and figuring out those styles and stuff really served you when music videos started blowing up? Oh, absolutely. You know, Michael Peters was a friend of mine and, um, but he, you know, he and I had danced on a lot of projects together, especially for Lester Wilson, the choreographer, Lester Wilson. And um, so I had toured the world with Shirley MacLaine and I had made some money for the first time in my life. And Michael Peters wanted to explore choreography. So he was teaching class and I was assisting him as a teacher in class. And I said, look, I got some bread. Why don't, why don't we rent out some space and, and, and you can play. You, you pick some people, I'll pick some people and, and you can just do your thing. Choreograph us on us and make us great, you know? So this was before Beat It. This was before Thriller. This was before any of that. And we became his sculpture uh, his clay and he became the sculptor and it was a lot of amazing people who were in it bill goodson who did so many things and still is here actively uh teaching and and and, and teaching around the country now marine jahan who was right. the flash uh, dance jennifer beals yes yeah, double i had her workout dance. vhs i had her workout vhs she was oh, amazing yeah, yeah. 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 A lot of people came out of that small little group. You know, another guy, Peter Tram, was in it for a while. And he he was actually the body double for Kevin Bacon on Footloose. He was so, in Jump, too. And he was blonde and he was sharp dressed man. And he was one of my other heroes along with you. He was in the second Jump. Yeah. Yes. Oh, he's so cute. Anyway, but um, Thriller, also direct, uh, choreographed by Michael Peters, directed by John Landis. Yeah. Um, 
you kept your teeth, your zombie teeth. Is that true? <laughs> yes, illegally. We were all supposed to hand ours in. Really? So you're a bad zombie. That is oh, not- I'm a bad zombie. You're bad, bad zombie. zombie. <laughs> the scary thing is, you know, we were much younger then, and and the frightening thing was as you sat there in that chair and you watched them turn you into a zombie, you thought, oh, my God, this is what I'm going to look like when I'm older. Well, now I'm older, and I kind of look like that zombie, so... <laughs> <laughs> was it freaky in any way to because you're you're in east l a right late at night people oh, are in yeah. these weird things granted it's all fake and all of that but was there something kind of it's sure it's kind of creepy in the middle of the night right it was it was surreal it was surreal and also to see all your friends you know all looking so strange and for hours and hours and hours and it it was bizarre it was bizarre Michael was amazing during that Mike both michael peters and and Jackson, but um, Michael Pe- Michael Peters has kept pushing us, and he was so wonderful. But Michael Jackson, he was such a trooper. He never complained. He would just do it again and again and again and again and again. And oh God, it was an incredible situation. And and I'm fortunate. So many of those people have gone are gone, you know. And I'm one of the last survivors of that whole era. So incredible. I um took part in a thriller flash mob a number of years ago. So I got to learn the choreography and uh-huh. did it through a friend of mine that I still take class with Benjamin Allen. I don't know if you know him, but he's a younger dancer choreographer. And anyway, it was a dream. I was a zombie and whatever like that. But, <laughs> but you write throughout the book about how choreographers, unlike directors and writers, they don't get to own their stuff in the way that other people get to own their stuff. Like I was doing every one of those moves as best as I could, you know, whatever, that it lives on, but there's not a copyright to it. It's it's sort of ephemeral, and it's not right. It's sort of not right. Um, and I don't know what you can do about it, because a lot of times they'll recreate the choreography and not even credit the choreographer. Right. But they'll do it. How does – that drives me crazy, and I'm not in that business. You know what I mean? It must be, <laughs> it must be frustrating. Are there any things that are, that are changing in that way, or is, is that just kind of the deal? No, in the last couple of years, you know, sort of it, it, it began to happen. Well, the movement to create a union for choreographers began back in the MTV days. Yeah. It was very difficult because nobody would take us seriously. And um, and also there was like, it was a time before dancers and choreographers had agents. Right. So everybody was out there working for themselves and scrambling for themselves. And when you're doing that, it's a matter of survival of the fittest. So you don't really have a lot of camaraderie with other choreographers because you're all going after the same gigs, you know, without anybody to help you out. But luckily what happened, even though I've been sort of one of these attendees at core groups over 30 years to try to make a union for choreographers. But what happened through the pandemic is a lot of young choreographers who were feeling this injustice started to get together on Saturday mornings in a chat room and start to have these conversations about it. And that I was invited to join and I started to put in my two cents. And now we have what's called the choreographers guild, the CG and we have an incredible amount of members and more members joining all the time. And it's basically a union that we are starting and um, and pushing heavily in this industry for people that work in the electronic medium for music videos, right. commercial, television, um, feature films, but also for tours, pop tours, right. fashion shows. There's an agency, there's a union in New York called SDC, Society of Directors and Choreographers, and they cover... Uh, theater predominantly, uh, Broadway theater, and some theater that happens uh, outside of Broadway. But there was never anybody to represent choreographers outside of um, storyline theater. Right. So that's what the Choreographers Guild is doing now. And we have some very impressive members and, and people that are joining consistently. So it's people for, and, and an incredible executive board with uh, ranging from people like Kenny Ortega to... Uh, Derek Huff, um, just a lot of wonderful people. And uh, hopefully this is something that will snowball and yeah. get more, more choreographers involved. And things like respect for each other's work, um, that will happen in-house. But also, hopefully, directors and, cor- and producers will realize that we are a very vital um uh, uh, aspect to entertainment and that we deserve a seat at the table along with all the people that we work next to. Right. You know? I agree. And I'm glad that there's movement on that, that things are happening. Um, so after Thriller, 
you ended up working on Smooth Criminal in a different capacity. And you write about this phone call you get from Michael in this meeting. Um, and also the Pepsi commercial that happened in between that, that Michael Peters worked on and Michael Jackson got hurt on it. So he wanted you to, to sort of spearhead Smooth Criminal. And you had that feeling of, oh, my God, this is a dream come true. Oh, shit. I have to tell yeah. Michael Peters. Right? Yeah. What exactly. Was it? it was it both of those feelings of like, oh shit, oh great, you know, kind of at the same time. Well, you know, I've always been one who who has desperately tried to never hurt anybody else in my movement forward in my career. Right. No, I, I I I would never do anything like underbid someone or or I, I don't know. It's just not in my nature to do that and. I was blown away when Michael Jackson asked me to originally to conceive, choreograph, and direct Smooth Criminal. Wow. Uh, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I only knew him through Beated and Thriller. and But I guess he saw something in me that I hadn't even seen yet and, and asked me to do it. Eventually, I did choreograph and I did conceive it. I didn't direct it because it became part of Moonwalker and they brought in Colin Childress, who was a DGA director. Right. But, you know... Exactly what you're saying. The night that he asked me, which was right around the corner here, uh, to come down and meet him, and, and and he played a little bit of the music. The song wasn't even done yet, and gave me a little cassette and said, here, I want you to do this. And I, I was just blown away. But exactly as you said, Dennis, in the car going home, my first thought with all of that joy was, what do I tell Michael Peters? Right. And Because I knew Michael Peters was a volatile man and and as deeply as i love him loved him i knew that he was going to erupt right and he and he wound up telling me that i was stealing his position from michael jackson and that i wasn't really worthy of being a friend of his anymore which absolutely devastated me but i just had to look at the bigger picture and i thought no, I didn't do that. So I'm not going to take responsibility for that. I right. did not do that. I'm going to move forward with my life and my career. And if Michael Peters would like to be part of it, I would love him to be part of it. Did it ever thaw between you guys? Did you ever? It did. Yeah. Michael Peters, he wound up, uh, unfortunately, having AIDS. And um, when he told me that, we, we met at a restaurant. I took him to a restaurant. He told me that. And after that, he softened a lot and he had a really beautiful group of people around him in the dance community who assisted him in going to the doctors and, and, and treatments and all of that kind of stuff. And I was one of those people. And I was fortunately the last person beside his mother and his manager, who was his dear friend, to speak to him before he passed away. There were a group of us there at his home and he asked to see me. And um, the beautiful thing about that was he told me that Michael Jackson had called him earlier in the day. Oh, my gosh. Sorry. That's okay. I get emotional, but um, he said that you know, Michael Jackson had called him and just thanked him for all the work he had done and, you know, and just basically thanked him. And that meant so much to Michael Peters. So I was glad that happened. Yeah. You know, a lot is, a lot is written a lot about um, – the AIDS crisis in the world of Broadway, you hear about Broadway equity cares and like the, the, those stories are sort of a little more out there, but like I think of the LA dance community and people that you worked with and going to auditions and they're like, Oh, well they're not there anymore. Or like, I don't know. What was it like at that time? It was like a war. I mean, I was fortunate to never have to go to any wars, but um, yeah, it was like a war where, you know, every couple days you'd hear somebody else you knew had passed away and, it happened so quickly back then, too, and um, it, it was frightening. I mean, I, I probably knew about 150 guys who died wow. through the 80s and beginning of the 90s. I mean, so many people on both coasts, but um, so many people in the dance community out here. I mean, I look at Beat It, for instance, and I, I see three or four people right there who died of right. AIDS. And didn't Peter it's, Tram, who we previously Peter mentioned? Peter Tram yeah. died. Tony Fields died. Tony Fields was a one of the main dancers in, in Beat It and also on Solid Gold. He yeah. was one of the two Solid Gold guys, yeah. Yeah, wow. I mean... Uh, it continued because Michael Perea... I'm uh, not Michael Perea. Michael Perea passed away too. But, um, um, you know, people... 
just, oh my gosh, it just kept on going and going and going and going. When I did the Blonde Ambition tour, which I, I want to ask you a question about in a second. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh I've got questions about that. I'm, I'm like but, building up. But, I've, got, I've got two Gabriel, pages. Gabriel Trupin, one of the dancers, passed away with AIDS. Yeah. I mean, it just continued and kept on going. And thank God things have changed a bit. Um, we lost so many wonderful, important, and necessary, valuable men during that time. And women. Yeah. And women. Did the art help you through it? Because I, I want to talk about the iconic Vogue Marie Antoinette piece that you put on Madonna. But I didn't know until I read your book that you guys did that again the next night after the MTV Awards for an AIDS benefit. For the AIDS benefit, yeah. Which is so poignant to me, but also surprising that logistically everyone's like, oh, yeah, let's just get back together tomorrow night and do the same. Like that it could come that it could that you could pull it off logistically. But <laughs> was there something about dancing that that helped you or, or, or the art that kind of got you through some of that? Well, of course. I mean, you know, when you're dancing, it's like any art form that you do, you immerse yourself in it and. When you're immersed in something, you're not really thinking about all the things that are happening outside of that sphere. Right. Uh, but I don't know if anything really helped one get through the fear and right. the, the sense of loss and 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 empathy and all of that. And but a lot of be, you know a lot of fear being a gay man. You just didn't know. And I was in a monogamous relationship for many many years. And thank God. Uh, I mean, I. Who knows what would have happened? But anyway, I'm very fortunate that I was not participating in that kind of situation. So right. I fucked out. You, know? you, you just kept going. Um, I listened to the audio version of your book. And as I was uh, driving yeah. around my neighborhood in North Hollywood, uh, I know you don't love it, but I didn't know you didn't love it. But uh, I wish you could have performed it yourself. But um, I, I, I loved listening to it. And there were like two or three times I was listening, driving through North Hollywood, and you'd be talking about the, the late, great Debbie Reynolds studio, and I'd be driving by where it used to be. <laughs> and I went to auditions there. The, the, the biggest job I ever had as a dancer was working for Princess Cruises, and I auditioned in that, at that studio. Uh-huh. But that's where you rehearsed with Michael Jackson all the time, at that grungy yeah. Debbie Reynolds, not the height of glamour, kind of deep in the valley. And it's just like a, apartments going up now. It just makes me sad, but it must – that place must be full of so many ghosts, you know? Um, oh. That place, yeah. Well, I did an incredible thing. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, when, the, when they were tearing it apart, I went and I got a bunch of floorboards. Oh, my God. You're holding up a floorboard from and Debbie Reynolds Studio. I got this weird thing on, on the Zoom. but Yeah. What does it say oh, here, on you it? Can, uh, there you can see a little bit, but it said, so what I did, I'll tell you, it says Debbie Reynolds Studios, 1979 to 2018. Oh. I went and I got so many boards and I, I pulled a few friends in who helped me cut them into different sizes. And then I paid to, um, have them engraved with Debbie Reynolds Studios. Oh. And then I sold them and I, and I, and I made about $32,000 and I, I gave half of the money to Bunny Hall to assist in bringing arts into kids in public schools in Los Angeles in the Amazing. poor section of L.A. And I gave the other to a woman who was a dancer who danced many times with me and for me eventually who had um, a real problem with needing a kidney replacement. Wow. And so I gave her the other money to help support her in her um in in, in her transition and in the transplant that she had. So... Yeah, so all of that goodness came out of that studio in so many ways, even when it was being destroyed, you know. Wow, I want to buy one. They're, they're all gone, right? I missed that. Yeah. What, how did you sell them? Online? An auction? I, I just, it was word of mouth, you know. I had people from all over the world wanting them because I, I took them basically from the floorboard, of, uh, from the floor of the room called the Thriller Room. Oh where my God, we, the Thriller where Room. We created Thriller, you yeah. know. So people from around the world wanted them because they were Michael Jackson danced on them. Yes. And, you know, so many people had danced on them. And, uh, yeah, so, but that was several years ago. And yeah. I'm just so happy that I did it. Oh, I'm so glad because it means so much to everyone that has one of those pieces. Oh, yeah. Everyone that, I mean, yeah, I just, I just would, I would be listening and they would mention Debbie Reynolds Studios and I would look up and I would be right there for some reason. Um, <laughs> but um, Smooth Criminal, uh, 
the choreography in that was sensational. And when I was, there's footage of you and Michael dancing in Debbie Reynolds, um, doing some of those moves. And as I was watching it, I was like, do you move like Michael or does Michael move like you? Or is it something in between? Because you were very one. There was a, there was a synergy happening. How do you describe the way you and Michael Jackson move together? Well, you know, I'll tell you, there was a synergy. Um, but I also had this crazy ability when I was choreographing to be able to take on another person's body movement. So if I was creating something for Michael, I mean, I couldn't do all that amazing popping and locking and stuff that he did, but I could find movement that would work for his body very easily and that he really felt comfortable with. But the same thing with Madonna, when I was creating for her, I would my body would pretend like it was Madonna and I would do that. Or when I was working for, with Bjork, creating for Bjork, I, 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 my body would just turn into these characters and these, these amazing people. And then I, they were much um, more um, available. My, my movement was much more available to them because it wasn't uncomfortable. It was something that felt natural to them because when they saw it on my body imitating them, they thought, oh, I can do that. Right. You know, and that's what happened with Michael. Um, of course, you know, he wasn't trained in a way. I never gave him like leaps or jumps or right. heights or something like that. But he had so much style and he had so much talent and he loved to learn and he was always hungry for knowledge. So I pushed him and he loved it. And um, it was great. We had an amazing, amazing 17 years on and off together. Uh, and every time we got to work together, it was the same thing. We would wind up laughing and working hard and sweating and then laughing. And uh, it was uh, just the best, just the best. You write about hanging out with Bubbles the Champ. Was that fun or is Bubbles kind of annoying? What was Bubbles oh, like? You know what's so funny? There's a man named Ron Pia who just, he, he's, he, he is the head of this Michael Jackson fan club. And he just traveled back to the East Coast because Bubbles just turned 40. Bubbles is still alive? Bubbles is still alive. And Debbie Reynolds in, is gone, but Bubbles is with us? Bubbles is still here. And he's in a, <laughs> he's in a, a, a primate, a, a, wow. a primate um, camp. with, And he has a huge monster cage that is like uh, huge. And he plays all the, and he paints. He does paintings. He, he I, I mean, I've seen him literally put his paintbrush in the paint, and he paints on the uh, pieces of paper. And yeah, Bubbles is forty years old. Bubbles, Bubbles was, is living his best yeah. life. But what was he like in the room? What was he like to hang out with? Oh, he was so sweet. I mean, there was always a trainer there. So you yeah. know, if Mike wasn't carrying him, then the trainer had him. But yeah. was, he he loved people. We could always go up and yeah. pet him. Or, Hold him, and you know he was adorable. Oh my God, I'm an animal freak anyway. So, so you love bubbles. You're on. You're, you love bubbles. Um, uh, Smooth Criminal. The move that I remember and everyone remembers is that amazing gravity-defying lean. And I always thought they must have some kind of their shoes must be stuck to the floor or something like that. But it was pulleys. It was, and there were stagehands involved, right? Yeah, That's yeah. That's amazing. How hard was that to figure out how to do that? Well, um, you know, I'll tell you. Uh, I was inspired, you know, as a director or choreographer, as an artist, you know, you see things throughout your life and you kind of put them in, file them away in your brain somewhere about, oh, wouldn't that be fun if I could do something like that someday? Right. And I once saw um, a, a company called Momix and they did a piece where the guy and the girl were on skis, actually, on the stage. And so they did all this movement that happened while their feet were in these skis. Right. And it's something that I had lived with for, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years. I don't even know when I saw it or where I saw it. Just the image stayed in my head. And I knew MJ liked weird things. So I came up with this idea that at one point, the guys that he was dancing, he was dancing with the street guys at that point, I think about five of them, that they would all do this lean together. Yeah. And so I talked to the stagehands and I said, I have this idea. I don't know quite how to do it, but, you know, can we work something out? And yeah, working with the stagehands, we came out with this whole idea of pulleys. Now later, and you know what's funny about this? I've seen dissertations and, and theses on how this move was done by them being in the floor and the angle of their bodies. It was not, it was, none of that's true. They weren't connected to the floor at all. Now, later in the tours, Michael had these uh, shoes invented where the heels would go into a nail kind of 
fit in a slot, so you could go over quite a way. Right. But that's how we did it when we did the video. So and the, it was it would go them. through their jackets, like a, a wire through their jacket. Like I was just like amazed at this. Yeah. The stagehands had to do do it right too. Like everybody Absolutely. had to be in sync. Oh yeah, it was quite a bit of rehearsal to make it as perfect as it was. Yeah. When you saw it unfold for the first time, were you just like, oh my gosh? We did this. Oh, baby, I wanted to pee. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe this is happening. Oh, my God, this is like a dream come true. Shoot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> iconic. And you were up for an MTV award but it, for choreography, but it lost to straight up Paula Abdul. And I love Paula Abdul. Me but too. that was not, that's not, I should write a letter. But you know what? <laughs> you can't, you know. That's the way. That's the way it was. Was it? Was it disappointing? Were you bummed out, or how do you how do you my, navigate the awards of it all? My career has never been about getting awards. I've, I've never really received an award for anything I've ever done. Uh, I received a Tony nomination once for choreographing "Kiss of the Spider Woman" with Cheetah Rivera, but I've never won an award. I've yeah. never won an award for my commercials, for my videos, for my films, for anything. Stage work, any pop tours, never. I've never won an award. Not an Emmy, not a nothing, nothing at all. Oh, I'm gonna, I, you deserve an award. You're gonna be my best podcast guest of all time award. I'll, I'll, <laughs> um, I'll take it, I'll yeah. take it, I'll take all anything. Right. <laughs> um, what was it like for you to write this book? How did it feel? Well, I, I had, I never had intended to write this book. What happened was, um, my co writer. You mentioned you saw the documentary that was done about me yeah. uh, by a sweet filmmaker, and they showed it at uh, Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and this woman, Amy Tofty, went to it because I was directing a play of hers, and she said, oh, my God, you know, you need to write a book. And I said, well, I'm not a writer, Amy. And she said, well, you're a choreographer, and a choreographer's a writer. I said, yeah, but I've never really written. She said, anything? I said, no, I've written diaries. And, you know, as I've traveled around the world, I I always kept a diary. And, you know, when I came home, I would collate these stories and share them with five or six friends. And she said, let me read some. So I gave her a couple. She said, you can write. We're going to write this. And I said, if you do it with me, I'll do it. Because I don't know the first thing about writing a book. So she did. And it took us a while. And, um, And again, you know, some of it was from taken from the diaries I had done. Some of it was done um, where she acted as a journalist and did interviews with me, uh, a lot about the early Michael Jackson things. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, that, and that's just kind of how it came about. And yeah. I was I was happy to do it once we got it done. I was very excited that we had done it and that I got to leave a bit of a legacy. And Because, as you know, as we spoke already, you know, often choreographers are just dismissed and people don't know what we do. So I thought, hey, here's going to be something in black and white that's going to last forever. Um, showing and talking about these amazing opportunities I've had and, and the incredible creative moments around them with celebrities that, that it would be fun to share with people what they're like in a working situation, not just what we hear through gossip rags, but, yeah. you know, what they're really like when they're putting them, you know, putting a show together or a piece together of some kind. And, um, and I wanted to share that. And I'm really happy that I did. I'm really happy with the book. Oh, I'm glad. Um, you write about the last time you saw Michael Jackson. You write about learning about how he passed and, and your feelings in the aftermath. When I hear a Michael Jackson song now, I usually go, oh, I love this song. And then I have more complicated feelings based on other things that we know in his life. And there's a lot. And I imagine having worked with him, when you hear a Michael's song, how do you feel about him now? What, how do you think about him now based on your experience? I think of him... Um... I think of him as a guardian angel. I mean, I think of him as somebody who's, oh, this is hard for me to talk about. I get very emotional, but I don't know, you know, he, he really was the one that gave me my break, you know, as a dancer first, he selected me to be in Beat It. And that began a lot of choreography for me. Then he gave me the opportunity to direct, uh, direct and choreograph the bad tour. And that was his first solo tour. He also gave me the opportunity to change the face of Super Bowl halftime show um, by giving me the freedom to just create the show that I wanted to do. Um, He gave me so many opportunities and I'm just grateful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He saw something in you because you, 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 with, with 
because you hadn't choreographed big things like that before he sort of no. said, yeah, he saw something no. in your interactions uh, previously where he was like, I know this guy can do it. It's beautiful. Um, you say Madonna. So, when I, when I so when I hear his music, it's filled with a lot of beauty, actually, and yeah. sadness that he's not here, sadness with whatever his life became at the end with the drugs and all of that and how difficult it was. And, and the sadness that I didn't know him better in that last decade because it upsets me. I'm the kind of person that if I had, if, 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 if he was an, had been an intimate friend of mine and I had seen him going through this, I would have done everything I could to stop him. Of course, he would have made his own decisions, but I certainly would have been on the scene giving him my two cents. Yeah. But I didn't know him in that last decade. And so I didn't, I wasn't able to do that. So it makes me sad. Um, tell people how they can find your book. Um, well, the book is called Icons and Instincts, and it's available on Amazon, for one thing, all over the world. Um, it's been out in French. It's getting ready to come out in Spanish, uh, which I'm very excited about because I've had a lot of fans from South America and Central America and Mexico saying, oh, we wish we could read your book. So a company from Spain contacted me recently, and they are going to do a Spanish translation. Um, but for the moment, uh, the, it, it, it's in, um, I think, besides Amazon.com, I think it's in bookstores all over the country. And also the publishing house, Rare Bird Lit, uh, R-A-R-E-B-I-R-D-L-I-T in Los Angeles. You can purchase it there. And I think that shortly it's supposed to come out in paperback. So I guess it's doing pretty well. That's great. Yeah. That's lovely yeah. to hear. Oh, you know what other thing I was obsessed with back in the day? And I don't, you weren't in it, but I wonder if you know anything about it because I wore this video out as well. Cher did a show at Caesars with Peter Tram. It was like Cher's celebration at Caesars, and she's diving into a big shoe. I wore that tape out, and you were not <laughs> you were not in it, but you should have been. And you, <laughs> yeah. I never met Cher. You know, she's someone I, I would have loved to have worked with or worked for or something, but I never had that opportunity. Yeah, but there are great stories in the book about Lucille Ball, Betty Davis, oh. B. Arthur. There's some. There's some great uh, people we didn't even touch on. What was the project where you felt like you were at the height of your powers as a dancer? As a dancer, I would have to say it would be in between anything I did with Michael Peters and working with Barbara Mandrell. Yeah. Um, because as a dancer, which was so rare, I got visibility. And I actually got fan mail. And people were shocked. I mean, my friends were shocked that as a dancer, I got fan mail. Um, so I have to say that was a pretty incredible moment in my life. But, you know, Michael Peters was such an inspiration that whether I was dancing for him in class, whether I was dancing with him on a commercial or a video, I always felt that I was doing my best work. Um, he, he, his, what he created as a choreographer for me as a dancer felt the most comfortable for my body. And I thought that I was very, um, talented at being able to be two seconds behind everything he threw out. The minute it came out of his mind and his body, it was on mine. And I was so, so proud of all of those opportunities and those chances to dance with him and for him. And, and it all lives on. So much of it lives on. So much of it is like we yeah. do it. Like we, people imitate it at parties. People that aren't even dancers know that yeah. stuff because uh, you guys created it. All right, I feel like that's a pretty good place to end part one. So um, we will get into a lot more, including a lot more Madonna stuff in part two. Thanks again to Vincent Patterson. Check out his book, Icons and Instincts, uh, wherever you get your books. And we've got part two coming up next time. All right, so this happened. Um, I have a friend named Felix Pyre who I've known for a long time. And he appeared in the movie 12 Monkeys with Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt back in 1995 or so. It was right around the time we, we first became friends. But I'd never seen the movie. And so The Secret Movie Club, which is one of my favorite screening series, in LA, and it's uh, headed up by a guy named Craig Hamill, who I actually had on the podcast. Um, they were doing a screening of it. So we got a few friends together, and Felix and, and, and his boyfriend went, and uh, we went downtown to the Secret Movie Club, which is in this cool place. It's like this funky loft in an industrial part of town, and you really feel like you're in a different city, like New York or something. And anyway, it's got this cool movie lover clubhouse vibe. And so we watched the movie, and I'd never seen it before. It was really cool. Um, and Felix does a great job. He's got uh, 
a lot of exposition to deliver as one of um he works with a, a group of activists and brad pitt's part of it and they're gonna save animals and stuff like that and he's got this youthful idealism and he's so young oh my gosh but anyway it was a really fun fun night if you haven't seen that movie could probably find it somewhere check it out it's cool and also if you live in la go to the secret movie club they do all kinds of cool things and craig hamill is such a gracious host and just one of my favorite la characters like he loves movies and i remember doing that podcast with him and hearing about his story and it's i just love it i just get a good feeling when i go there so all right that's enough for this week thank you so much for listening i want to give a shout out to aj susa for mixing the episodes my theme music is by mark Daniels for placement music we'll catch you next time for part two of vincent patterson on the dennis anyone podcast bye